Welcome to the Practical Church Revitalization Podcast. We look at revitalization in real time, examining the ups and downs of revitalizing and replanting historic and legacy churches throughout New England and the U.S. Now here's your hosts. All right, welcome back to the Practical Church Revitalization Podcast. I am your host, Don McKinnon, pastor of Legacy Church in Sutton, Massachusetts, and with me is my co-host, uh, Eric Malloy. I'm the pastor at First Church in Charlestown in Charlestown, Massachusetts. Um, and that's Charlestown, not Tun. I kind of got in trouble for that when I first started. So, you know, the uh, first time I looked up your church, that's what showed up. And I, what was funny is, <laughs> of course, you're from South Carolina. So, right. You know, it kind of confused me. So, but of course, I called Charleston, South Carolina, Charlestown, South Carolina now. So, I'm, uh, I'm all messed up. So, and what's funny, what's funny, I'll throw this out to you, which you don't know. The guy who used to be the um, one of the associate pastors at Met, um, Meeting House Church moved to Charleston. So now I, now I have like this. The, the, <laughs> it's like a, a swap, a transplant here, or in, uh... in literal sense. Yeah, well, I'm from Columbia. We don't claim those Charleston people, so there's a there's a strong divide. They're they're a little snobby for us. All right, so before we banner too much, we should probably introduce our our special guest. Um, those of you guys, um, we have a series that we're working on. Um, this is the first of um, hopefully four. We definitely three for sure. We're waiting on the fourth to confirm um, where we're interviewing the candidates for the president of the SBC in 2021. Um, this one was a little bit easier because um, uh, as we, as Randy will talk about transparency, I was a church planner back in the Northwest. So our paths crossed for a, a year or two before I, I moved out East. Um, and so we have with us Randy Adams, who is the executive director um, slash treasurer, right? That's how we do it in the Northwest yeah. of the Northwest Baptist convention. So before we go any further, I think we should probably just let the man introduce himself because I'm going to butcher it and not do as good of a job. So welcome to the show, Randy. Why don't you, uh, I guess, maybe tell, just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your background. Sure, you bet. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Don. Um, I grew up in Montana, born in Idaho. My family's all in the Northwest, in Washington and Oregon. Uh, however, moved to, and then went to college in Montana, Montana Tech, uh, petroleum engineering major. I was already saved but my life wasn't where it needed to be. And there was one Christian group on campus and it was Baptist Student Union. And really God used BSU not only to help redirect my life, but to bring me into Southern Baptist life. And I thought as I got into and then joined a local Southern Baptist church, and it was interesting to me that the only Christian group on campus was the BSU, Southern Baptist. And I thought, you know, we're the Methodists or the Assemblies or whomever, or the Northern Baptists. And I learned about the cooperative program. And I learned that Baptists work together, Southern Baptists, to reach people all throughout the country and around the world. And then uh, my first ministry really was directing that BSU as a senior. Uh, that led to a call to preach. When I graduated, moved to Southwestern Seminary. I, I had never been there, never been to Texas, didn't know anything about anything other than I knew I needed more training. And my pastor directed me there. That led to 30 years in Texas and Oklahoma, pastored three churches was a minister of evangelism prior to that for just a year before my first senior pastorate. And then God really blessed our ministry. Uh, my first church, by the way, was a, had 10 people. 
they had no Sunday school, no anything, just a Sunday morning worship. But in that little church north of Fort Worth, God really blessed. And um, we never grew to be huge. But after about a year or so, we were running about 35, started a Sunday school. And then we started a new church. And that new church uh, is still going. It finally, after a decade or 15 years, merged with another church. But that was, uh, you guys are a a revitalization uh, group. And and that really brought revitalization to that little church, starting another church. So church planning, evangelism has been where I've lived forever uh, in ministry. Um, And then in 2004, I was asked to lead the evangelism and missions team of Oklahoma Baptist, which included all the collegiate ministry, all of the good stuff, you know, all of, all of the things we love and enjoy as pastors, all of the overseas mission partnerships and that. Did that for eight and a half years. That was a great time of preparation to learn how Southern Baptists function when we function best, what partnership looks like and cooperation looks like. It was good preparation for coming to the Northwest to be the exec here in the Northwest, which uh, has been wonderful. Been here eight and a half years or seven and, seven and a half years, almost eight years. And, um, and it's just been a wonderful, wonderful experience uh, to be on the mission field in the Northwest as you guys are on a mission field in the Northeast. But anyway, that gives you a little bit about what, uh, who I am and where I come from in ministry. I think the engineering background, I've always appreciated that because it's sort of an analytical, critical thinking type of preparation. And then of course, the theological preparation in seminary and the pastoral preparation. So Anyway, that's that's who I am. Well, that's, uh, that's exciting. I always tease my wife, you know, she's originally from Washington, that if we ever moved back west, uh, it'd be Idaho. So that's mm-hmm. uh, that's always a fun one, you know, kind of kind of in the middle of nowhere. Not that we're planning on it. I mean, I don't, you, sure. know, you know, and you can't say <laughs> something like that. Man, people right. are going to hear that and be like, oh, my gosh, she's moving. So, no, that's not the case. But I always tease her about that, you know, get a piece of property and live in the middle of nowhere. But uh, I'm not sure she's on board well, with that. And people are surprised because our our churches are the Northwest is Washington, Oregon and Northern Idaho. About 30 percent of our churches are non-English. So we have a lot of Korean and Russian, of course, Spanish, Vietnamese. And people are surprised by that. We have about 500 churches, probably 150 to 60 right now, worship in a language other than English as their primary language. So it's just a lot of fun to be in a place like this. That's awesome. Yeah, I know uh, Mark Ford out there, my buddy Mark. I know they they have a Spanish speaking service, um, or they're they're. I always confuse if it's a church plan or whatever, but I always thought that was uh, that was really pretty cool. So, yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, Mark yeah. is now my pastor. Uh, he started a church in Ridgefield where I live. I'm an elder in that church, and uh, so a part of a church plant. We've been at it for about three years, and God's really blessing. We've already started another Hispanic church, by the way, in addition to the one you're familiar with, and we've got some other church plants in uh, in line. I think we have a guy moving here in, in the summer to plant a church in the Portland area, so yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah, I met Mark when he was at First Baptist Longview, and we just uh-huh. kind of when I was church planning, we just kind of, you know, there's always guys you just kind of hit it off with. And yeah. uh, Mark happens to be one of those guys. We've joked about starting our own podcast down the road. So um, mm-hmm. we just thought that would be kind of fun. Um, so, yeah, so that's awesome. I, I you know, I, I think I knew that you were in Mark's church. I just, I think I knew that. So, all right. So let's, uh, let's see, let's, uh, let's hit. So the first question I guess we wanted to ask is what do you see as the strength and weaknesses uh, in the in the SBC currently in the convention, 
Well, the current strength, I think, has been our historic strength, which is cooperation and partnership. Um, it's also becoming a weakness in terms of its, its diminishing. But, you know, Southern Baptists became what we are because we agreed to work together for the cause of Christ. It's, I, I do think it's a miracle because uh, the local church is the king, the, uh, the entities and the denominational hierarchy or structure, I should say, is all voluntary. Churches can do whatever they want, as you well know. And, um, but that voluntary cooperation to do more than a local church can do by itself has resulted in a, in a seminary system and a missionary system that's just been incredible and you know, has allowed us to grow to where we are, not just in the United States, but around the world with thousands of missionaries. Um, so I think definitely cooperation and partnership uh, for the sake of the gospel is our strength. Um, and then there's a lot of associated related strengths to that. I think our greatest weakness is that is now being challenged as never before. Um, we are in the midst uh, still of the most historic decline we've ever experienced in our 175 year history. I believe, I think uh, that that decline, I think I know some reasons for it. And, and one of those reasons is partnership and cooperation is greatly diminished as a result of the Great Commission resurgence choice that we made in 2010. And so I think the great need we have to bring us back to where we need to be is transparency, accountability, increasing partnership, and that will lead us to strengthening our mission. I don't think it's good enough to tell pastors and churches, you just need to share Jesus more. I think we need to organize our efforts to help our denomination, help our churches share Jesus more and share Jesus more effectively. Every part of the country is different. You know, you're, it's different where you are than the Northwest and then Dallas, Texas, you know, and I think we have to respect the fact that we have a variety of cultures and soils in terms of missionary soil that we're planting churches in and trying to reach people in. And uh, that's, that's a strength for us as long as we, were, we respect the local leadership and local autonomy, those who, those who live where they serve and therefore should understand it better than anyone else because they live and serve there. Right. So I would say that's our, that's our great weakness. We need transparency in the system. I mean, financial transparency, it's just not what it ought to be. Uh, even transparency in terms of performance, I think most Baptists really don't understand where we're heading, the trajectories of where we're heading financially, evangelistically, church planning wise, missionary wise, you look at every cooperative program has been declining significantly. People don't know these things. I believe people have a right to know and they have a right to know what the solutions are or what at least we think the solutions are so they can make educated choices. You know, people may reject or not agree with what I say or anyone else says, which is perfectly fine as long as we have open dialogue. And as long as we're able to share those ideas and debate them so that we can make a more educated choice. So. I, yeah, I like that. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that's actually, as you said, uh, every church autonomous and having um, their own way that they're ministering. That's actually been a point Eric and I have always been comparing is he's in the city. I'm, I'm rural. And um a lot of a lot of what you see out there is cookie cutter solutions, and it isn't going to always fit for each situation. So, what I do here with my uh, church 
to minister to, to the community is different than what Eric's been doing. And we can compare and contrast and, and glean what uh, we can, but, you know, it's not going to be like, as you said, go and do this and it's going to work for everybody. That's a great point, Don, because even in the Northwest, people think of the Northwest as a mission field and as different and harder territory perhaps than Oklahoma or Texas or someplace in the South. And that's in general true, but it's not true in specific in every location. We've got towns in the Northwest that are quite Christian. Um, we have one town, Toledo, Washington. Eric probably knows that town. The pastor's been there 40 years. It's the only church he's ever pastored. The, the Pre-COVID, at least, the church was running about 400. We don't have many of those that large, especially in a town of 750. You know, I mean, that town, yeah, now they reach beyond their town, but that's that's so very different. There's another town called Toledo, but it's in Oregon, town of 3,500. And the church is a replant right now because it essentially died. And there is no other dynamic church of any other group in that town. The net culture of that town, the soil, very, very different than Toledo, Washington, for whatever reasons. So I think I've always said we need to press decision-making and resources down to the most local level because um, I don't know Toledo, Washington, like the pastor there knows it, not even close. But I do know about Toledo. I know something about Toledo and how it's different than Seattle or Longview or Toledo, Oregon. And national leaders can't know those types of things. So missiologically, it's always best to keep decision-making as local as you can uh, in terms of how resources are applied, both people resources, financial resources, all of those types of things. And respect what you said, Don, that Every church in Massachusetts isn't on the same turf or has the same soil or the same issues, you know, and I think uh, we have to have a missionary approach as pastors today. And we at least have to understand that not every, you can't do the cookie cutter approach, you know, mm -hmm. you, and not every town is the same. You know, I, I think that's good. Um, that's one of the things I think I, you know, I'll, I think we're supposed to try to be what somewhat neutral in this, but I'll, I'll be honest. That's part of my, you know, it's a little frustration that I see is that there's, you have decision-making that, that happens at a higher level. And it's not really even fair to the guy who makes those decisions, because even in your situation, you're asking a guy to, to be an expert in a, in a very large geographical area, at least for you, that's very mm -hmm. different from place to place. I mean, I think, when I was in the Northwest, I worked with Phil um, a lot and re our region, region two goes from, you know, places like Longview, Kelso, which are rural to suburban out to very rural, very remote areas. And you're asking a guy to be an expert from, you know, over a 500 square mile area. And it, there's mm -hmm. so many little towns. It's just not, it's just not possible for a guy to mm. do that. I mean, you're really, you're literally asking the impossible. You know, even where we're at in Boston, ask a guy to be an expert in every neighborhood in Boston. I mean, you're, it's, every neighborhood's different. You go from Roslindale to, to, to Charlestown, to Jamaica Plain, to, you know, everybody, every, West everyone's going to have its own, <laughs> yeah, every, you know, every area is going to have its own unique, unique uh, issues, unique culture, unique whatever, and it's, it, you're asking people, you're asking one person to be the decision maker. I think, I'm, I, you know, I have to agree with you. I think you're setting up a system that's going to fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. You know, when we look at scripture, for example, um, the Apostle Paul was sent by Antioch 
And, uh, but Antioch did not micromanage Paul and Paul didn't understand, you know, the particulars of what he was going to do until he got there. Now he was a man filled with the spirit of God, gifted by God, a God called missionary. That was what was key about Paul. He knew the word of God. He had the spirit of God. When he arrived at Ephesus, he saw what was there and he was able to figure out, you know, how to make inroads into that city which was different than when he went to Philippi and different still when he went to Athens. And so what I say is, you know, Paul didn't know Lydia was in Philippi until he got boots on the ground and living in Philippi, spending time there. He now sees where God is at work. You know, we used to be taught, look for where God is at work, look for the people in whom God is at work. And, uh, and from that, you maybe know what the particulars are of what you need to do to reach that area. And I think this kind of top down strategic, approach that's corporate, often in the way we apply resources or make decisions. It's just not helpful. And I think it's one reason we're in decline. I think if we trust God called men uh, to do what God calls them to do, to equip them, to encourage them, to, you know, so you're exactly right. Like, I don't know Spokane, like the pastors in Spokane. Now, I do know some things, and I've got experience. Typically in my role, you've pastored a number of years, you've seen things, you've done things. And I might know what's happening someplace in Redmond, Oregon, that might be helpful to the guy in Spokane, Washington. But if he doesn't own that, if he doesn't believe that, if he doesn't see how that might apply to his work, then it's not going to happen because he lives there. I don't. I might help him. I might be able, be able to consult with them. But ultimately, it's the implementer that has to be convinced of the approach and of what to do, and because the, the implementer is the one who's going to do it. Yeah, no, that's a good way. That's a, that's an excellent way to put it. Um, so, kind of on the heels of that, um, I think you've touched on a little bit of that. So we, you know, we see some strengths and weaknesses. What are some of the biggest changes that you'd like to see um, in the SBC? Yeah, well, one is transparency. Um, I think there's too little known about how the money is spent in some cases, um, how decisions are made, but how money is spent. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's odd to me why we don't know more than we do. I'll give you an example, which I think is a powerful example, but church planting. So the North American Mission Board in 2010, the church planting budget was roughly $22 million dollars. Um, we were planting in the first decade of the 21st century, about 1,300 churches a year, roughly. Um, the net increase, by the way, in churches in that decade was more than double the net increase in this current present decade. So some have questioned the numbers back then. What I would say is, well, look at the net increase in Baptist churches, and you can see we really were starting real churches in that first decade. So... Uh, and the budget was around 22 million. Well, now the budget is 75 million. I think it's most recently been reduced to 72 million. But we're spending 50 million more dollars, uh, more than three times the money. And our most recent church plant number was 552. And that was in 2019. We don't have 2020 yet. But 550, and by the way, those weren't all funded churches. Those were some churches that were not funded or they were funded by state conventions and not by North American Mission Board. So what I've said is, why, where, how is the money being applied? How do you spend an extra $50 million and get less than half as many churches? You ought to tell us, you ought to answer that question. Where's it going? And maybe there's a good answer. I don't know. I just haven't seen it. So um, 
you know, things like that. I think financial transparency, it's God's money coming from God's people. And if people don't want us to know exactly how the money's being spent, you have to wonder why, you know, why? I've actually called for, and a number, hundreds of us have, maybe thousands, for a forensic financial audit of some of our entities. I think all of our entities ought to go through that type of audit, which doesn't simply tell you whether what they do is legal. It tells you how they, what, it, what are the specific ways they apply the dollars and what are we receiving from that? You know, what are the contracts and, you know, who's mm. getting the funds specifically? And I th- and, and if a person resists that, I want to know why. Why would you resist transparency? Right. Uh, and the reason you would, perhaps, is you don't want to be held to account, which is my second thing is accountability. And I think we ought to be accountable for what we do and how we do it. And um, our boards of directors in Baptist Life, I have a board I'm responsible to. I think in virtually every board meeting, I tell them, I am your employee. I am accountable to you. Your job is not to represent me or the convention to the churches. Uh, If you like what you see and you can say a good word, that's wonderful. But your job is to represent the churches and the interests of the churches to me and to our convention and hold me accountable to do what we've agreed to do. And if I'm, if we have different ideas about that, then we need to discuss it. And if we can't get on the same page, then we have a decision to make. Well, I think, in fact, I'm, I'm quite certain that doesn't happen in all of our boards, in all of our SBC entities. I think that some of our boards do better than others. And, and, uh, but that whole idea of accountability, I think is huge. And transparency helps pr- provide accountability. And then partnership. As I've said, uh, partnership has greatly diminished in Baptist life between the national and the local, and that's to our detriment. I think that's what I personally think that's one way and one reason we're spending three times the money and getting less than half the churches. It's one reason evangelism. We defunded hundreds of evangelism positions, hundreds on college campuses, association states. And I think it's one reason our, we've seen our baptism numbers sink to the lowest level we have seen since the Great Depression, the last, the lowest four years in baptisms of the last uh, 80 years, well, at back to about World War II are the last four years. You know, you go back 75 years, the lowest four years are the last four years, and that doesn't count 2020. That's prior to 2020. So you have to ask the question, why? My when I look at things, I think that we've taken tons of boots off the ground that were serving our churches. Uh, developing strategies, um, doing training, things like that. And I think we've suffered for it um, greatly. It's not just money spent on material, it's people. You know, we were a network of people at our best, a network of churches and then associations that served the churches, state conventions and regional conventions that helped serve and work with the associations and the churches. And then the national entity and the national entity worked through us largely. The customer was the state and the association, and that's been flipped. And so I think it's been greatly to our uh, detriment. So if we, so the mission is what's most important to me, accomplishing the mission of mm-hmm. reaching people. And so I say transparency, accountability, and partnership enables us to accomplish the mission. And some want to say, well, to accomplish the mission, we need to set goals. And if we set these goals about what we want to see in the mission, 
maybe we can accomplish the mission. I think it's the cart before the horse. First, you have to have a system that's transparent and accountable, which empowers us to partner together. By the way, partnership helps accountability. Mm -hmm. You know, if local leaders are involved in church planting and are involved in evangelism and missionary strategy, you're, you have greater accountability because now you've got the local DOM, the local state people who know better what's going on in that local church. Uh, I think that also helps produce a more accountable system. And I need accountability, by the way. I welcome it. I need it. I need checks and balances in my life. I think we know power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You know, so uh, I just think if a person doesn't want that, the question is why? <laughs> you know, I can see that's, I, you know, you know, we call for that in our own, in our own local church and, and we call for that in local churches. So I think that's a good, um, I think it's an excellent platform to look at on the national level as well. No, yeah, I, In fact, I, just, just a, like, I like your Eric, your system that you have of accountability with the pastors you have to answer to, you know, it's, it's kind of like what Randy's talking about is there's a system of checks and balances, um, you know, and you have that because of how you are as a, as a replant. Um, you're one of my checks and balances here. So it's something that we understand. And I, I, I'll just add this real quick, Randy, what you're saying is like when I got here as a replanter, I came to six people who had no idea what evangelism was and the state convention, or as we call it here, the state's convention, because it's New England, all, all six mm -hmm. states, um, they had a guy who came and spoke to us about evangelism. And now because of those cuts, he's gone. He's uh, no longer here, retired. And um, I think he's missed by a lot of the younger guys that are coming in here. And um, they, they need, they need, in fact, I know a guy um, right up the street in uh, Worcester who is suffering because he doesn't have somebody that he can rely on to help train his people in evangelism that way. That's a great illustration and observation because sometimes guys forget when they get in the big church where they were when they were in the little church starting out, you know, and uh, my director of missions in my little first church really was of help to me. In fact, every church I ever pastored, they, they were of help to me and the state was as well. And I think sometimes we forget guys need help. Not every pastor is a, is a 10 star multi-talented superstar in terms of giftedness person. Most of us are reasonably gifted people, you know, and we're called of God and we're reasonably gifted. And when we have some other people encouraging us and helping us, we do better. And I think we forget that if we're only putting the focus on the guys that, you know, are the superstars out there. Well, that's, that's, that's a very small group of guys and but praise God for them. But you know, there are guys like that that maybe don't need a whole lot of help from someone else. They probably do, but maybe they don't now. But most of us need that. And we certainly do when we're young and starting out. Oh, yeah. I was, you know, I think about that. It was nice having a having a connection with, um, well, we, we didn't call them a DOM out West, but it was nice to have guys around who had uh, been doing a little bit longer. I mean, I was, you know, I went from collegiate ministry to planting a church um as a, as the uh, that was my first pastorate was just mm -hmm. church planting all right guys here we go and so you know we always joked that we were building the plane while we were flying it 
And, uh, you know, trying to, I mean, you know, not only are you trying to figure out how to, you know, not only are you playing the church, but you're trying to figure out how to be a pastor in the midst of it. So to be able to have guys that you could be like, Hey man, I'm a, I got some questions for you. Um, was, was always beneficial and helpful. And, um, you know, I think the other problem we have with staff going away is now you have less convention staff who can provide that support for, same amount or more pastors. I mean, if we are planting churches, then your pastors grow and now you have less people to, to, to ask um, the questions to, to, to go to mm-hmm. for support. And so now those guys are stretched even thinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're trying to figure out how to, how to make this work. So I, you know, I think that's a good one. I think that's a really solid, uh, solid response and, 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 and a good kind of a good vision to go forward with. I, I really, I like that. So, all right. So the next one, we man, give the listeners a little bit. We talked a little bit about this uh, off, uh, off, off recording. So I, I already kind of know a little bit about where we're going to go and, and stuff. And um, I know uh, Don and I are both, well, I'm kind of off social media right now, but prior to being off social media, uh, which by the way, has been great. Um, I apologize to all of you um, who have ha- had to miss out on my complaining of bad calls during football games. Um, since that's the majority of what my posts are <laughs> lately, but um, it's been a nice little break. But prior to taking the break, there was a post I saw in a Southern Baptist group we were in, and it was people were asking what they thought was a greater concern um, in their in their local church, and that was the QAnon. QAnon. I don't even know how to say it. Like it's not really a thing for us <laughs> up in Mass. I mean, I don't know anybody who, who's dealt with that. Apparently, some of our brethren more in the South. I guess that's more of a thing. Um, and then the critical race theory slash intersectionality to me kind of seemed like two of the big, two of the big conflicts in the Southern Baptist right now. It's, you know, it's a question whether someone's, you know, what side they're on. I don't even want to use terms or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you believe is the best way to kind of deal with some of these conflicts right now? Sure. You know, you know, the best way always is to stick with scripture. I think scripture is sufficient. Scripture has the answers. And I mean, back when I started in ministry, probably still in the 1980s, I made a decision to avoid terminology that was like red flags. Um, uh, And especially if it's not biblical terminology. So Mm -hmm. I just, in my preaching and and talking, I just don't use terminology that's uh, a red flag. And I try to stay with biblical terms. So for example, I think when, and I don't know, virtually anything about QAnon. I mean, I've not met a person to my knowledge who's into that. And I've not been asked about that or in our churches that I know of, are they, is that an issue? But if it was like CRT can be, certainly, I would say, just stay with what the Bible says, preach the gospel, preach the word of God. The word of God has everything we need about how to love our neighbors and love our enemies and what do we believe about the races or about the you know people who come from different parts of the world? Well, the Bible tells us every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. Jesus died for every person. And in Christ, it doesn't matter where you come from, Afghanistan or the United States of America, you can be a brother and sister in Christ. And so I, I just think that when we get into social theory and political theory, we get on turf that's not our turf. And it's not that there aren't social policies and political policies that need to be made 
by our governing leaders. And the, it's not that we don't need to speak into them, but I think where we speak into them best is when we help them understand what scripture says about the equality of all humanity and about the need to love each other. So that's really where I am. And it's where I encourage our pastors to be is just stay with the word of God and you'll stay out of trouble. Or if you get in trouble, you're getting in trouble for the right reason because you're preaching and teaching the word of God. I can take that, but I don't want to step into a political landmine that is just dumb of me to do because it's not my, it's not where I need to be as a preacher of the gospel, essentially. Uh, I'll just be honest and uh, hopefully I'm not going to step on the landmine here. You know, mm-hmm. with, with all of this, it makes me long for the days that we were arguing over Calvinism or non-Calvinism, because <laughs> at least that way we're like, at least that way our argument might be silly still but at least we're like hey what's the most accurate way we can be biblical i mean really that's you know that that's what it comes down to um and now we're you know i mean if this is what our big fights over it to me it's a little more you know i miss the days where we're like hey you think this i think this how do we how do we match our 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 biblical worldviews that differ as opposed to now so yeah i'm totally with you on that one i mean i don't really I, you know, and let's be honest, we all hated the Calvinism argument days, but man, that, yeah. that seems, that seems like the good old days now, huh? Well, I'll give you, a, I, I heard a guy interviewed a few years ago. He was a poet, an Irish poet, and he was talking about the troubles in Northern Ireland, which was the troubles were a time period in the 60s, 70s and 80s, in which there's a Protestant Catholic war in Northern Ireland, bloody hundreds of people, thousands probably died, but then they made a peace agreement in the nineties. And here's what the guy said. He said, you know, that peace agreement doesn't mean we love each other. He said, we hate each other. We just don't kill each other. And so we call it peace. Mm -hmm. If you can get, if you can stop in the, in in this world, if you can, you could win a Nobel prize by getting people to stop killing each other yet still hating each other. And the, and then he used a term that I'd never heard, but I haven't forgotten. And he said, really, what we achieved was a peaceful bigotry. We, we, we don't kill each other, but we hate each other, peaceful bigotry. And I thought, you know, that is the best the world can do, peaceful mm. bigotry. And so when we're talking about political solutions and social theory solutions to problems, that's really what they're trying to do. They're, they're not trying to change the human heart. They're not, uh, they don't even pretend to think that they can get people to love each other um, or or understand that Jesus is our peace and peace is only found in him. That's not. And so that's kind of where I, I am on some of these things is that if that's where we go, we might find a peaceful bigotry type solution, but we won't find true peace. I'm going to steal that by the way, just so we're clear. It I'm is right, a good I'm one. I'm writing it, it down. <laughs> it, it, it's a pretty good. I actually wrote a little article uh, back in February last year on this very issue uh, because I knew I needed to, I knew I needed to address it. And that's the way I addressed it. But, um, so I do have an article on my website going back a year or so on peaceful bigotry. <laughs> that's like, so we did, um, right when the, right when the riots were breaking out back in May, man, I don't know, 2020 kind of feels like one big long month. Yeah. If you're going to be honest, July, <laughs> we, uh, we did a sermon series, we called it reconciled. And all we did was we just, you know, and I'm a book as the Bible guy. I'm not really a big topical topical sermon guy but we did um we did a a series and we just literally were like reconciliation comes through christ i mean we're reconciled to him and reconciled to each other so as a church man if we're trying to reconcile people through 
you know, peaceful bigotry, as, as, as he put it so well, then it's not reconciliation. I mean, our, our job is even as what Paul says it, or is it Peter is that we've no Paul, we've, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so all, honestly, it's a ministry. Yeah. We're to reconcile people. And you said it really well is, you know, we have to be reconciled to Christ first, and then we can mm-hmm. see each other as being made in God's image. And, you know, even when you look at the book of Philippians, when Paul says, well, you know, there's no longer Jew, there's no longer Greek, you're all believers, you're all brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, that's, you know, that, that stuff's secondary compared to, to the eternity that, that we're going to spend with Jesus. And I just thought, man, that's, and so that's kind of what we've talked about. So I really feel like you and I are really on the same page when it comes to that. I think mm-hmm. ultimately we have to point people to Jesus first and we have to put our, including ourselves, we have to point ourselves to Jesus first. I mean, yes, you know, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the case. So, yeah. All right. So the last question we have, and of course, since we are the Practical Church Revitalization podcast, um, mm-hmm. there's been a big emphasis on church revitalization in, in the last, I'd say, probably two years, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, of course, you know, for Don and I, that's right at our own, at our hearts. Um, sure. So what is uh, kind of what's your view on on church revitalization? I know that's kind of a broad question, but like as far as implementation and, and the necessity and the importance of, and even your experience in it, like what are your, how would you go about talking about church revitalization for those of us who, for those listeners who aren't SBC and are going to go, you know, okay, okay, okay. But you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about revitalization here. Sure. I'll talk more as a, as a practitioner, not necessarily a theoretician, theoretician uh, in terms of the, the books on the subject and whatnot, but every church I pastored needed revitalization. Um, They were all declining, two more than the other, and what really helped us is just getting people to look outward, you know, helping Mm. people know that reaching others, doing missions um, was the way to revitalize, and so my first church I mentioned hadn't baptized anybody in four years when I got there. They had 10 retired people left. And so uh, I just started visiting in the community. I mean, I knocked on every day. It's a very rural community. There weren't that many people. And I would take people with me when they could go. I used CWT back in those days, continuing witness training. That, I did and, that. Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, I, I totally know that. Sorry. <laughs> and that was the way I, the, the primary way I would share the gospel. And, um, and I started seeing people saved. And I remember the very first guy who got saved was a 47-year-old man, Curtis Adelot, still a friend to this day. He's an older man now. But, uh, but I remember his wife said, me and the kids will be there tomorrow, but my husband doesn't go to church. Well, he showed up. And the reason he showed up is he was in bed sick, but he saw out the window, me, and he said, who was that? And she said, oh, that's a preacher from the little church down the road. And he said, huh, a preacher that wears blue jeans. I'll try it. And long story short, within a month or so, he came to faith in Jesus and he was the first guy ever baptized. And that first year, I think we had eight salvations and baptisms, Wow! And which was amazing. Yeah. And then I took everybody, our first big, so after a year, we went to Glorietta back when Glorietta was a camp, a big training camp. And we had, we were running 22 in Sunday school after that first year, I think it was 22. And we had 18 go to Glorietta. And it was just a great experience to do that together. And then I think maybe we were in about two years when we started our first church. Wow. And we didn't have people to send, but we found a great guy. And I won't go through the whole story to be the pastor of that church. And we were able to come up with a little money and some 
labor to help them get a, a, a meeting place ready. And God just did a great work. So I've, I've always, and then my second church, something similar. It really, by my third church, I was 32 when I went there. I, uh, I, I got into missions. I, my parents, I grew up in Montana, as I said. My parents weren't in church when I was called to preach. A guy from my seminary went to my hometown, Whitefish, Montana, to try to start a church. And my parents agreed to help. The church didn't get started at that point, but the light bulb came on for my parents as to the purpose of church. They knew Jesus, but they really didn't know the purpose of church. So they sought out the nearest Southern Baptist church about 15 miles away. Long story short, my dad ran a sawmill and he had a missionary in their home one day. And he said, we're thinking in retirement, maybe we'll do missions. And the missionary said, why wait to retirement? Your kids are grown and gone, just quit, go do it now. And so my dad quit. Nine months later, they were living in Pakistan. Wow. And for 12 years, my parents ministered in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran primarily uh, with the IMB. Wow. My wow. dad, a high school grad, no college, but a very smart guy and a very capable person. And he would negotiate with a lot of these local Islamic leaders to get our personnel into places in that part of the world. It's pretty remarkable. Well, it opened wow. a door to me for missions and for my church. And God just revitalized our church and my own life through doing not only local evangelism and local ministry, but international uh, evangelism and church planting and whatnot. So that's really been a part of my life and ministry since 1993. So I, my primary approach and what I try to tell people, and again, you guys mentioned, and it's so very true, every community is different, every church is different. Start with who you have and try to look outward. And there are certain things that churches do that you don't need everybody. And evangelism and missions is one of those things. If you've got one or two people that will share Christ with you in your community or will go with you on a mission trip, that's all you need to start. You know, you don't need the whole church. Now you want the whole church to pray, to give, to do certain things. But, and then some of those that haven't done yet will see how much fun and enjoyment in Christ there is for those who are sharing the gospel and are doing missions that they'll get involved as well. So that would be the number one thing I would say in revitalization, get your people looking outward. If people are looking inward at themselves or just inward at the church, uh, you know, it's just, it's going to lead to problems. Now, another thing I would say about that, I hear very little kingdom praying in our churches on Sunday morning, for example. So how often do churches and does the pastor lead the church to pray for missionaries by name, maybe with some knowledge as to what their situation is? I can tell you right now, we have a partnership in East Asia in the Northwest and the big country in East Asia. We don't have anybody there. It used to be our biggest field uh, in terms of personnel. But with what's happened in recent in the last year, especially, and uh, in, in a little bit prior, it, it's all changed in East Asia. Those missionaries are, they're raising their children. There's more missionary children on the field than there are adult missionaries on the field. And so helping our church understand that, teaching them how to pray for our missionaries, teaching them how to pray for the persecuted church. I mean, I try to remind my, I was, I'm, I was teaching Vietnamese pastors in the last two weeks. I was doing it online. We have 12 Vietnamese churches in the Northwest. And so I had Northwest Vietnamese. I had Vietnamese in, uh, 
in Vietnam, also in, in my preaching class. I just did four nights and preaching is what I taught in seminary some and still do. And uh, so I wanted to take a picture of the Zoom because there were like, there was 10 students and I thought well, it'd be kind of cool to post a picture of all these Vietnamese folks and I'm teaching. And they said, you can take our picture, but you can't post it on social media because again, some were in Vietnam. One of the guys said, I was in prison for two years for preaching Jesus and doing evangelism in Vietnam. And he's still there. And I'm thinking here, I'm teaching preaching to a guy who spent two years in prison for preaching in Vietnam. Mm. Now, I think our churches need those kinds of experiences, even if they don't go to know and hear and learn how people suffer for Christ, it puts things in perspective. You know, our folks are wrestling often with petty things, small things, not always, but some things are sort of petty and not that big in comparison with what believers are wrestling and struggling with around the world. And so I just think, you know, the persecuted church, the missionaries uh, doing missions, doing evangelism, getting people thinking and praying about things like that revitalizes people and there thereby revitalizes the church that's the biggest thing i would say and there's a lot of you know organizational stuff that people can learn and about decision making and all that that can help toward revitalization but to me if we focus on that before we focus on developing the heart of god's people to say yes to god when mm -hmm. he calls and when he puts opportunities before us you know the the, the whole the, the kingdom of god has largely advanced through opportunities uh, opportunities created and opportunities seized. So you think about William Carey started the modern mission. I'm getting a little bit off now. Stop me if I'm going too far off. Okay. No. no. William Carey started the modern mission movement. He went to India in 1793, but William Carey was not the first British guy to go to India. The British had been sending ships to India since the early 1600s. The British East India Company was in, uh, in control of India largely by the 1750s, and it was 40 years later that Kerry goes as a missionary. Now, the way Kerry got there was he jumped aboard a ship. He took a ship that was going to India. That was his opportunity. The British were already there. had been there for 150 years plus. So that's true for missionaries all over the world, by the way. Our first American missionaries, uh, same thing. There were opportunities provided with Adoniram Judson. Uh, our, our IMB missionaries, you know, it used to be we had no IMB presence in communist countries, Islamic countries, places like that. And it was a little over 30 years ago, we had some missionaries say, why in the world would we want let a government keep our people, keep God's word out of their country? Can't we find ways to get people and the gospel into these countries where it's illegal? And so they developed some processes to do that and ways to do that. And what it did was it created opportunities for people to go. And um, if you can create those opportunities for people to serve Jesus, some of those people will say yes. They won't all say yes, but nobody would say yes if the opportunity is not provided. So as a pastor, as a as a, a leader of Northwest Baptist, I think one of my job is to help provide opportunities for people to do gospel work. And if we can do that, we're going to see some good things happen. So that's awesome. I love it. You're um, yeah, I love your blue jean story that it. <laughs> no, it, 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 uh, it hits home when we were church planning in Longview, there was a, 
a girl that um, our worship pastor and I, that he's a whole nother story. Um, we had taken a class with at the community college and we'd been inviting her and she said, all right, well, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring my, I'm gonna bring my fiance. Um, and so he comes in and, um, you know, we were, you know, Longview's a uh, mill town, uh, logging, blue collar, you know, kind of thing. So a lot of the dudes on our worship team, you know, wore hats, drinking energy drinks, you know, very kind of typical of that. So we look around and we're like, oh my gosh, where'd this couple go? Well, she told him he had to take his hat off and leave his monster energy drink in the car when he mm. came into the building that we were renting. Well, when he came inside, he looked around and he's like, all these guys have hats on and are drinking energy drinks. I'm going to go out in my car and get my hat and my energy drink. And then I'm going to come back. Well, about two months later, they got baptized because he felt comfortable coming to a church that it was okay to be, to wear a hat and drink an energy drink. And he, you know, that was a barrier for him to be mm -hmm. like, you know, normally I don't, I don't feel comfortable in church. Then you get here and he's like, Oh, Hey, look, okay. I, I can do this. And so I just yeah. think that's a, I think that story, your story in particular, as well as ours is a very, you know, it's the idea of contextualization. You know what I mean? You wouldn't, right. you wouldn't go to India for instance, and be like, we're going to plant a traditional um, mid-century middle of, of the United States church in the middle of India. And we're going to preach, mm -hmm. preach in English. And no, you wouldn't do that because you would be one of the worst missionaries in the history of missionaries. But yet sometimes mm -hmm. we try to do that with revitalization, you know, in our own country, we're like, Oh, well this worked in Oklahoma in 1962. It's going to work everywhere. And, you know, mm -hmm. we don't, um, you know, we, we don't understand that. I think, I think it's a great idea and a great understanding of missions and revitalization. So yeah, no, I think that's, that's awesome. Well, I don't have a lot more. I don't know if uh, if there was anything you wanted to add, Don. No, uh, I think he he uh, Randy's answered our questions that we had. So yeah, very yeah. good. Well, let me say, since part of this was because I'm a candidate for the SBC, come to Nashville. <laughs> and if you believe in what I'm saying, then you can vote for me. And if you believe in what someone else says, vote for them. But. Uh, the idea is get involved and, uh, you know, we're in this together. In fact, I, I will say this. Uh, the one thing I do like that you put in your, and I know, as Eric said, this is probably going against the, the thing we're supposed to, but the fact that you said um, 2020 has shown that we can do things um, that right now have been uh, argued. I've seen them argued in some groups on social media. But um, we've had to basically do this, Zoom meetings mm -hmm. for uh, a year. And uh, a lot of our annual meetings in different state conventions have happened this way. So yeah. it's possible. And, uh, you know, Eric and I are both small church pastors and we don't get uh, uh, funded by our churches. We have uh, bivocational jobs. So uh, it's tough. It's tough to take the time. So yeah. it's definitely something I support with that. Yeah, but you can't get Hattie B's. You can't get Hattie B's fried chicken over a Zoom. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we did our meeting via Zoom, and uh, and we or it wasn't via Zoom, but it was social. It was uh, over the internet, and we voted. You know, we used a system where people voted. We had four different votes. I think it was. It worked. Um, yeah, there's a way to do it. You know, uh, you can't control things. That's the thing. If you open up the system to involve more people then what can show up there, now it's harder to control. What I've said is, who, who wants to control? 
unleash God's people, you know, Amen. get more people in bivocational pastors. Good heavens. I mean, how hard is it to do some of the things we talked about, let alone take a week to go to an annual meeting. So I think we should make it much easier for guys like yourself and your church members and people remote from the meeting location to participate. I just think that's, that's, uh, to me, as you, as you said, Don, they may have thought a year ago that that wasn't possible, but I think we've learned, well, maybe it is possible. <laughs> yep. Well, so, hey, look, we did find something good in 2020. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of it. All right. Well, with that being said, I think we can probably sign off, let Mary get back to his day, since it's, the middle, of, since it's the middle of the day in the Pacific Northwest. So, yeah. you know. Eric and I so, have both been teaching already today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good times. All right, well, let's. Uh, thank you, Randy. Thank you for taking the time with us. It was. Thank uh, you. It was great to reconnect with you. Um, yeah. Of course, uh, it wasn't intentional. Our house has always looked that. Well, Don's office and my house always looks that way. So I apologize that you had to look at the Patriots gear um, the whole time, but. I guess that is Patriots. I saw the 12 and I thought of uh, Seattle, but it's not Seattle. It's oh, Patriots. my, you know, <laughs> my wife, my wife is, um, you know, is, is a native up there and all of her families uh, think calls her a traitor because she didn't care about sports. We got married and now, you know, we live in Massachusetts. So she's a New England thing. And yeah. so after that, uh, after the Super Bowl, that we won, she texted her family and was like, I think it's really nice that you hang Tom Brady's number up on top of your stadium. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a reminder that he conquered you guys. And yeah. uh, they weren't, they, they didn't, they didn't think it was as funny as we did, but um, you know, it was an hey, exciting I, Super Bowl. Can I pray for you guys, by the way, you can edit that out, but no, you that'd guys be, are church planters, man, bivocational church planters. I'd love to pray for you. That'd sure. be awesome. Sure. Okay. Father, I just thank you for Eric and Dawn. I thank you, God, that they uh, not only pastor their church and work other jobs, but then they take time to, to do a podcast and to just educate people on, on your work in, in a variety of ways. And I just thank you for that. I pray you bless them. Bless their families, Father. Bless their kids growing up in a household that has to be so very busy. And then of course the challenges of COVID this year have just added that great complication. So I just pray you'd give them rest and peace and joy in their ministry and, and abundance in their life, Father. And I pray this in Jesus name, amen. 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 All right, thanks brother. I appreciate Thanks guys. Thank you. You're gonna send me a link? We will, we yeah, will. We post it. Yeah, this probably, <laughs> we probably won't post these until like closer to the convention. Just because I think okay. you're, you know, just relevancy, it'll probably be a little more, you know, we want to try to get them all. radar. Yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, definitely. Just let me know. Yeah, I'll definitely, I will definitely let you know and we'll tag in all that other kind of fun stuff. So we're trying to get Moeller. Moeller's the only, the only one we haven't gotten a definitive from. So, but yeah. uh, that's the, that's the only guy we haven't gotten it. We've gotten uh Hey, let's look at the schedule from him. So. Yeah. And you might even, I don't know, you might not wait too long to post these because there's a tension right now now that that should that probably will grow you just don't know how it you think started off and then boom everything gets shut down but right. hopefully that won't happen this year let's right. hope not let's hope not yeah. i'd like to try to get to nashville i gotta be honest with you i'm hoping to make it um, well, i'm hoping to make it all right well let's there. all right well let's let us sign off with jan here so then we can um okay. all that 
All right. So for Eric Malloy and Randy Adams, I'm Don McKinnon, and this has been the Practical Church Revitalization Podcast. Wishing you all a happy and safe day, and God bless. <laughs>